So we are up to Titus 3, beginning at verse 9. And before I read Scripture, I'll just share something with you. Last Sunday, we read the first eight verses of Titus 3. And my intention was that we'd read the whole chapter, even though I was really focusing on the first eight verses. And then kind of on the fly, just before I came up here, I'm like, you know what? We'll just read through verse 8, because I'm really only preaching through verse 8. And maybe there's something there in the last verses for us, even though they're Paul's concluding remarks. Well, I think after studying and and praying about it, I think God does have something to say to us yet in these last verses. Um, I really do. So I'm excited to finish the book of Titus with you, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 3. This is God's holy and infallible word. Not the most encouraging words to start out a Mother's Day sermon, but keep listening and listen through the sermon. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. That concludes the book of Titus, and that's our scripture reading for this morning. Brothers and sisters, friends, once uh, a professor and a missions leader who preached regularly in churches was asked why he preached so much on grace all the time. And his answer was this, there's nothing else to preach. Someone pressed him a little bit. He says, but there are so many other things to preach on. Our duties as Christians our relationships with other people, our personal character, and improving ourselves. But this missions leader, this professor, stuck to his guns and said the fact is that everything else we could talk about and preach about and apply in terms of Scripture and say about our lives finds its proper context and its motivation in grace. So that in a very real sense, it's always about grace. There's nothing else to preach but grace. And I agree very much with those thoughts. And I agree with others who see grace as a major topic in this chapter of Titus. Even though the emphasis, we've seen it a few times now, is on doing good. Verse 14 mentions that, that we read near the end. Verse 8, just before our text, talks about that. 
But the context of us doing great good is God's grace. The motivation and the purpose behind our faith being for the church, for the world, and for our very own, like we talked about last week. The reason for all of it is God's grace in Jesus. When Paul summarizes our faith like we read last week in verses 3-7 through of chapter 3, grace is the emphasis. God saved us, verse 5, not because of what we had done, but because of His mercy. And mercy is basically a synonym for grace. Verse 7, we are justified by God's grace. And then the letter ends with Paul saying, grace be with you all. What is grace exactly? Decades ago now, when Billy Graham was driving through a small southern town, he was stopped by a policeman and charged with speeding, or so the story goes. Uh, Billy Graham admitted his guilt and was told by the officer that he had to appear in court. When he did, the judge asked, guilty or not guilty? Graham pleaded guilty, and then the judge replied, that'll be $10. That's how I know it's a long time ago. $10, a dollar for every mile you went over the limit. But then suddenly, the judge recognized the famous minister. You violated the law, he said. The fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. And then he took a $10 bill from his own wallet. He attached it to the ticket, and then he took Graham out for a steak dinner afterwards. And Billy Graham would tell the story. He said, that is how God treats repentant sinners. That's grace. The judge recognizes our guilt, but he pays our debt, and then he gives us the righteousness of Jesus and life abundant on top of that. God in Jesus pays the fine And he treats us to a steak dinner. We pay nothing. It's free. Grace is the foundation of the church. It's what keeps us together. It's what builds us up and it's what keeps us strong. And it's what we preach. Grace is our message. As Paul concludes, you saw probably, I'm guessing it's in your Bible in the pews as well as any other NIV like it is in mine. Before verse 12, it says, final remarks. We might be tempted to think these are sort of some final throwaway comments from Paul. Not so important, but as we look closely, as we've seen in other letters of Paul that we've gone through all the way, we find out these final words are really important too. Looking through the lens of grace, uh, what I think Paul gives us are a few details of how the church is built with grace. And so that's what we're going to talk about, some nuts and bolts of building the church on grace. What do those nuts and bolts involve according to God's Word, according to our text? First of all, They involve exercising gracious conversations, gracious words, as opposed to ungracious words and ungracious conversation. 
The muscles we exercise get strong, right? Our words, our conversations must be grace-filled. And that grace will increase even as we exercise the grace muscles. And this is verse 9. Verse 9 describes ungracious words in the church. The true faith, again, remember it was summarized in verses 3 through 7, is about grace. Any other gospel, any other message is not of grace. And then in verse 9, Paul describes some false teachings that were creeping in the early church. They were not founded on grace, but they were founded on you got to do this or you got to do that. And and chapter 1 of Titus, verses 10 through 16, gives us a little bit more about what that false teaching involved. And, And we read about this particular false teaching in other letters of Paul too. And the fact is that any teaching... Any words, any conversation not laced with grace sidetracks the building of God's church. Before we speak, whether we're back in the narthex, in the fellowship hall, in our small groups, always ask yourself, are my words coming from the right place? And the right place is a place of grace. If those words that you're about to speak are not coming from a right place, zip it. Just zip it. It's not of grace. Those words are coming from the natural man, the old man of sin, like we say sometimes. Because the word that we proclaim, the message we have, is grace. The word we live is grace, friends. I'm sure you've heard about the country church that had a gossip problem. And the preacher decided he was going to solve this uh, with, with a great sermon on gossip. And he did, and he didn't, he didn't solve it. He did preach this uh, sermon on gossip. Afterwards, a member would shake his hand and said, Pastor, all the stuff we say about folks around here is true. Truth without grace you know what, that's not really truth. That's not really gospel truth. In a conservative church like we are, where we stand on the Word, where we, and I'm I'm glad we do, where we hold doctrine dear, where we want to get Scripture right, where we want to teach right, we have to be very careful that what we say is not only right, but gracious. We have to be careful in a place where we're concerned with right teaching, like we should be, that we don't go down rabbit trails in terms of doctrine. We need to be concerned, in other words, that we keep the main thing, the main thing, not to focus and teach and preach on things like Paul talks about that are unprofitable and useless. There are things worth discussing And there have been throughout the history of the church. We want to get God's word right, yes, but we always need to be on guard not to let secondary issues become 
main issues. And I don't think we do that here. But this verse reminds us of the importance of that. Are we exercising gracious conversations in the church? Gracious words in terms of what we preach and teach. And may God give me and Pastor Matthew the courage and the grace to preach God's grace in every sermon. And may give Jonathan the focus to teach grace to our students and all his teachings too. So in that big picture of our teaching and preaching, but also every single one of us is grace part of every conversation we have. Not just part of every conversation. Is that the impetus, the foundation for every word we speak? Anything not from a place of grace, zip it. It will not build the church. All right? Building a household of grace involves, secondly, extending gracious concern toward others. And this is verses 10 and 11, which, like verse 9, are some very strong words. Paul is firm here in his warning against a divisive person. And he says if a person like that doesn't change or turn or respond, be done with him. He says such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. And, and so this certainly tells that in a church, we don't mess around with people who are divisive, people who stir up trouble. And the elders have a very special responsibility here uh, to guard the unity and protect the unity of the church. This is one of the very major topics in all the New Testament when it talks about the church. But in the firmness of Paul here, don't miss the process. And I believe it's a very gracious process that leads up to what he says. In society, think about this now, in our justice system, we talk about due process, right? We're innocent until proven guilty. And that's a very important foundation of our country and of our justice system. And, and these days, it's sad, and it's a complicated issue we have with the media and social media, but it's sad, and it's not right when people are tried in the media or on Facebook before they are even tried in court. You know, whether it's the way the media puts out headlines about government decisions, you know, all these airline mishaps or, or people who are just accused of a crime. People can be assumed guilty just by how the conversation is framed and, and where the gossip starts going. But that's not the American way. That's not the way our country was designed. There's process and it's a gracious process, I believe, that is based ultimately on God's grace and Scripture, I think, is how the founding, founding fathers intended it. In terms of a troublemaker in the church, the pagan way, the way, in other words, for someone who doesn't know God's grace, you know what the way is? It's to be done with the person. Cut them off. 
write her off without any sort of reaching out, without any sort of conversation. Giving a warning, like Paul talks about here, not just once, two times. That's not part of the approach the world has at all. But in the church, you see the gracious approach here, even in these harsh words? In the church, Paul didn't want that. And he describes an approach of grace. And so there's a a gracious process. If someone is a troublemaker, you don't just write them off. You don't just kick people out of the church. You don't just talk about this person behind their back. No, the gracious way is to go to that person, warn them, not just once, but again. And it reminds me of the process the Bible gives us in Matthew 18, if you have a disagreement or issue with someone in the church. This is really important. We don't have time to go into it, but it's a gracious process that Jesus gives us. You've got an issue with someone, what do you do first? You don't go around talking to other people about it. You first of all go to that person. If that person doesn't respond, there's a next step. Take a Christian friend, a brother or sister, and try to convince the person. If that still doesn't work, then you go to the church. Then you maybe go uh, to an elder or a deacon or a pastor to have them help you. There's a, a gracious process if someone gets off track. We want them restored to the church and to grace. So how do we deal with someone graciously who's on the wrong track? We don't write them off. We don't, in elders' meetings, scratch off their name off the rolls. We go to them. We talk to them, not about them with others. We go to them in love and grace. Something uh, when I was in middle school, has stuck with me for many years. In 7th and 8th grade and part of ninth grade, I lived in the Netherlands. Uh, my dad was a student there studying uh, preaching, actually, theology. To, um, and we had a wonderful church that, that we attended there in the Netherlands, in Kampen, which is a, a small little town in the eastern part of the Netherlands. Uh, once... And I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves me right, uh, it was uh, after the evening service, my dad went after church as we were walking to our bikes, because we drove our bikes to church, and then you park them and lock them in the alleyways. Um, we We were as a family going to our bikes, but I saw my dad doing something else. He He was talking to a kid who was sitting in front of us in the pew in the church. He was maybe my age or a little bit older, and so he would have been like high school age then. And I was mortified. I'm like, what is my dad doing talking to this kid? And I learned later what my dad was doing. And that that teenager, during the message, during the proclamation of God's word of grace, clearly was not engaged, fidgeting, not listening, bored, doing whatever. It was obvious to anybody sitting behind this kid, apparently. I didn't notice it at the time. Instead of letting that go, my dad, 
Again, he was not a pastor, a council member, or anything. It's a regular church member. He felt led to talk to that student about listening to God's word and how important that was for our lives. I think how and when you do something like that should be done very prayerfully and, and carefully. But what was my dad doing? He was extending gracious concern. He saw a kid who seemed to be going off track. He went to him. He talked to him. He warned him. Do we have these conversations of gracious concern with people in the church who seem to be off track, who we are missing in worship, who used to sit by you in the pew and you haven't seen them lately? Do we have these conversations of grace with people who disappoint us, with people who differ from us. The alternative is to do nothing or to gossip. And those are both pretty ungracious responses. As the elders lead the way in the church and are called to do that, they're called to lead the way in grace here too. And I I can tell you, after a good number of years of being part of conversations with elders about district care and how people are growing spiritually in our church. I can tell you, friends, your elders take this kind of approach. The approach of grace and love and wanting people to be restored and active in the church. At some point, if that gracious conversation is rejected, Paul says, there comes a time where, okay, leave them be. They've made their choice. But it's not because the church or the leaders have been ungracious. It's because that person has consciously decided to reject grace and in doing so has rejected Jesus. And that's absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do in your life. Devastating. In dealing graciously with concerns in the church, I can't help but think of a mother's grace as a wonderful example to us. Um, What was the line in that first song, who loves me when I'm crabby or something like that? Well, who else but a mother, not a father. (laughs) When a child is annoying everybody else in the family, when no one can take it anymore, guess who still loves that kid? Her mother does. And she says, why are you annoyed? How could you possibly be annoyed at my precious one, my baby? And even when there's wrongdoing, that kid did something wrong, a mother's love never stops reaching out with grace to get that person on the right track with prayers, with wooing words. No mother is perfect And there are days in dealing with children, young and old, but a mother will want to see things handled graciously and in love so that no one is maligned, no one is treated unfairly in the family. And that level of patience and grace, it seems to me, is what we extend to others in the church with a view towards embracing and including our brothers and sisters back into the fold. If they reject, as Paul says, that grace... It's on them. They're self-condemned. And that's serious. But it's not because of us. They're self-condemned. 
Finally, the last nut and bolt of building a household of faith on grace is that each one of us engages our gracious callings. Uh, Verse 12, Paul talks about Artemis and Tychicus. One of those guys was going to apparently take Titus's place on Crete uh, so Titus could go to uh, Nicopolis. Um, then verse 13, we got some other details. And then verse 14 really stands out. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Seeing that part there about providing for daily necessities, it sounds to me like a mom, again. Um, Even for husbands and dads who are very helpful around the house, and, and, and some guys really are, and, and can do cooking and baking and laundry and cleaning. Yet it seems no matter what, the mom more than anybody else provides for the daily necessities of the home. She inspires us, encourages us, equips us with her grace and love to go out into the world as family members to live productive lives. God's grace inspires us to do good, as Paul keeps emphasizing in chapter 3. We do good as Christians, not just when we feel like it, not just sort of act nice and say good things in front of people that we know in the church, but we do good wherever we are as Christians. We do good Not so that God loves us, but we want to do good because he loves us. Because we do good, because he did the ultimate good for us already. Sending us Jesus when we were bad, when we were sinners, when our tendency was toward harmful words, not gracious conversations, harsh judgments and condemning other people, rather than gracious concern and desire for people to be restored to Jesus and the church. Yet, he loved us. Out of God's goodness, we do good. Wherever we are, whenever. In our various callings in life, whether it's me as a pastor, you as a teacher, a salesman, a husband, a wife, a friend, a mother, a student, whatever we do, we do it for the Lord. And we engage our callings joyfully and passionately. We claim whatever area of life it is that we're busy in for Jesus. The grace we have come to know and receive can be brought by us to our homes, to our cubicle at work, to the phone conversations we have with people, with clients, to our giving, to our service, that grace can be extended in all those areas. And so, Paul concludes, grace be with you all. What better prayer can you think of as we build the household of faith here at Faith Church? That God's grace be with everyone who participates in our church life and everyone we come in contact with. The handyman that I am, I have a toolbox and I have another tin can next to it filled with screws and nails and nuts and bolts. That was a little bit of a joke. Maybe 
I, I can be handy if I focus on it, but a handyman, <laughs> Todd's looking at me, Todd Linnemolder and others know that's not the case. But there are occasional things, lower level things that I do, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, but I got a toolbox, I've got this this tin thing with nuts, maybe you guys have something like that, or a glass jar, you know what I'm talking about? God's grace in Jesus comes to us in our lives. And you know what? He provides every tool that you need. He provides every nail or screw, every nut and bolt that you and I need for salvation and for life eternal, and so that we can live graciously for Jesus now. You've got the tools. I've got the tools. You've got the nuts and bolts. And as you receive God's grace and blessings, just imagine every day dipping into your toolbox to build beautiful things in your life and to build up this beautiful church more and more all the time. Are your conversations, your words, laced with grace in the church and beyond? Do we extend gracious warnings when someone is off track? Do we reach out in love? It's not a loving thing to say nothing. It's not a loving thing just to let them go. Don't assume someone else in the church has talked to the person. If you feel on your heart to speak to someone, pray and discern the Holy Spirit's prompting. Pray he gives you just the right words, the grace to lovingly approach and correct. And finally, you know, do, are we consciously thinking about engaging our callings with grace? Are you thinking about the fact that God has put you where you are to share his grace with others and to think about everything you do as your grateful response to God's amazing grace for you? How will the church grow? How will it be built up the way God wants it to? How will the younger generations be built up and create a legacy of faith for their very own? By grace, of course. It's all about grace. 